I guess we could just close with that. That was pretty good. Good morning. I uh, hope that you're doing well, and I uh, hope that your week has been good. And uh, we, we just want to open this morning, and uh, we're grateful to all of those who have served. Uh, for those of you who have lost people, uh, who have served in the honor of our country and to defend our rights and our freedoms and also to uh, be able to help people overseas. Uh, we we uh, sit here this morning, we, we remember those family members. Um, you know, since 1866, we've remembered those people who have fought in these wars beginning with the Civil War. And then it began to transition even further in the 1960s and 70s. It came about so that we would remember what people have done. The legacy, if you will, that our country has been built upon. And so we need to be grateful for those sacrifices because sacrifice is such a big part of who we are as Christians. And sacrifice we understand. And it really is built into our DNA. So those who would sacrifice for our country are incredibly grateful. And not just those on the front lines. Those who sat behind the desk and those who made it possible for these things to happen were grateful. Now, we don't wish to negate those people who did not lose their lives, but the folks who were able to come back, uh, those who went to war and they came back and they are a vital part of our fabric, much like this gentleman right here. This is Richard Overton. He is the oldest living veteran. He's 107 years old two weeks ago. And uh, he was from World War II. This is the 107th uh, Memorial Day. And uh, men like this who went out to serve and helped carve a place in the world so that our country could stand firm. Now, we celebrate guys like this. Uh, but the, one of the things I used to love was listening, as, as uh, um, Chris said, to my grandfathers. And they began to tell stories about what would happen as my grandfather had his ship shot out from underneath him two times while he was out in the Pacific. And uh, just these amazing, amazing stories. And uh, one of the things that I, I love to take out of that was the reality. It kind of transports you a little bit. One of the war stories I read about was this gentleman in World War II. His name was Russell Dunham. And Russell Dunham uh, was in the U.S. Army. Now, he was an Army sergeant. And he ended up receiving the Medal of uh, Honor later on for charging a snowy hill in the Alsace region of France and single-handedly killing, wounded, or capturing 18 German soldiers. On the afternoon of January 8, 1945, Sergeant Dunham was leading a platoon in the 30th Infantry, 3rd Infantry Division, when the soldiers, among those his own brother Ralph, were pinned down by German fire. German machine gunners and riflemen fired down over the Americans while the artillery barrage landed behind them. The only way to go was up, Mr. Dunham later said to Reader's Digest. Wearing as camouflage a white robe he had made from a mattress cover, Sergeant Dunham ran up the hill toward uh, ahead of his platoon and charged a machine gun emplacement. He was shot in the back and now his white camouflage became soaked with blood and was now useless. But despite the excruciating pain from his wound, the Medal of Honor citation said he wiped out three machine gun nests, attacked German riflemen in Foxhold, and moments later, Ralph Dunham destroyed a fourth machine gun position. How would you like to try to top that guy's story at the dinner table? You think about that. You're like, yeah, well, my grandpa did this. Yeah, well, my grandpa is Ralph Dunham. Well, what, what am I going to say to that? But you think about that legacy that he passed down to his kids. You think about that legacy. He said, listen, I did this because I want you to remember that this is worth fighting for. I did this because I believe that there's something bigger than me that I am willing to fight for. And you think about his legacy today. People who don't even know him across the world, us right here, are telling his story. 
Legacy is a very different thing. And the fact that people are willing to fight for things bigger than them lend towards that. They're fighting for freedom, their families, or something that maybe they couldn't even put their finger on, but it was bigger. Many of them gave their lives. They left a legacy of strength, freedom, and heroism. Now, understand this. We're going to talk about the word legacy this morning. And a legacy is directly connected to the life that we live. All of us are going to hand down a legacy. Every one of us. And it could be negative as it started out in that video, or it can be positive. But Memorial Day is so interesting because it does celebrate the legacy, the memory that these men and women perpetuated for our country. And the legacy is of sacrifice. Now, so often the greatest legacies are ones that are left unintentionally. Think about this. Who's the greatest coach you ever had? Mine was a coach named Mr. Williamson. I remember to this day. He's my 7th and 8th grade basketball and soccer coach. Left one of the most indelible marks on my life. I still, to this day, whenever I see him, I celebrate him. He never intended to do that. Or, or the countless soldiers who went to war and never came back with a book deal. Or parents who sacrificed so you could be where you are today. The intent wasn't, okay, what I want to happen, I want my kids to be talking about me from years, from years and years down the road, and I want people to celebrate what I've done. That really wasn't the intent. The intent was, I want to do the best I can with the life that I've been given. Going to the Bible, you talk about a widow who, unbeknownst to her, was being observed by the Son of God himself as she walked up in Matthew 26 and put two small copper coins in the offering. Very, very little. Yet Jesus said this, her story will be told on and on and on and on. Her faithfulness. Even though she had very little, she wasn't trying to make a legacy, wasn't trying to make a memory. She was just doing what she was supposed to do. Esther, in the book of Esther, who stepped up to save her people, uh, her people, Israel's lives. Now, she wasn't going in to make a statement. Hopefully they'd write her name down. But 2,500 years later, we're talking about it. They even celebrate it every single year uh, during the Feast of Purim, where they remember how Esther stood up and said, listen, to the king risking her own life. I, I'm begging you, save my people. Do not let anyone kill them. And because of that very bold act, she saved her people from annihilation and massacre. She did what she needed to do, not to create a name, but because of, what her, because of who she already was. I think legacy is a powerful thing. And it doesn't, it doesn't just point to a person's accomplishments and say, wow, look at what they did. It says, wow, look at what we're able to do because of what they did. Let me differentiate a couple things. Legacy and memory are very, very closely associated. But a legacy is something more. It's something that is left behind that's more than just a memory of the years a person inhabited their body. It's something of value that's given to the people who will come after. It's like this. It's something that challenges others to step up or to springboard from it. A legacy says... I'm giving you an opportunity to step up to what I've already done. Continue this on. Or, I didn't have these opportunities, so I'm carving them out for you to springboard off of and do even greater things. I just had a daughter, and we just celebrated, celebrated her five-week birthday. And we'll probably celebrate every week after that. It's just one of those things you understand, hopefully. But... I, you start to think about this. 
How are we setting up our house? How, how are we doing things so that she has the best opportunity? So that when Shiloh is a grown woman, that, that she can look back and say, my parents helped me move forward. There has to be intentionality. There must be a way that we look at our lives and don't and realize that we are not an island unto ourselves. Do you, do you remember the first time when all of a sudden you realized the world's not about me? Do you remember that? Some of you maybe are not quite there yet, but you remember that time you're like, oh, the, everything doesn't just circle around me. My actions affect other people. Whenever I say, do, think, and act on things, they affect other people and there is cause and effect and there's consequence that right there is the moment that we begin to think about our legacy about our standing about who we are called to be the type of legacy we're talking about is one that impacts the future in a positive way and makes the way for others to do exactly the same it's about something much much bigger than ourselves we can all say we want to leave a legacy we want to be remembered in the world a better place because we lived how sad if the last thing anybody remembers about us is a gravestone. How sad if we live our lives in such a way so that we cease to exist. And we've talked about it as our church, as a body. If we were gone tomorrow, and this is a question we ask over and over and over again. If we were gone tomorrow, would the community mourn that we were no longer here? Would the community say, oh, everybody heights is in here. They're such a valuable part of our community. And for a variety of reasons. Why? Because we desire to make an impact for the cause of Jesus Christ here. If the only people who mourn are sitting in these seats, then we have not done a good thing for the cause of Christ in any way, shape, or form. We're going to be going through, starting in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and, and I'm going to encourage literacy this morning. So I'm going to kind of tell a story, and we're going to walk through this, and we'll bounce back and forth. But starting in 1 Samuel chapter 16, that's in the Old Testament, going up to 1 Kings chapter 1 encompasses the life of David. It's an amazing story. One of my favorites of all times. Probably David and Joseph. If I'm reading about something, I get excited. I'm like, that's awesome. I mean, anybody who can just grab a lion and just like kill it, that's awesome. Anybody who can kill a bear is awesome. And then you get out to nine foot plus Goliath. Come on, man. The guy's a stud. It's good. So I celebrate that. And I look at it and say, hey, listen, how do we take these things that where you're like, man, this guy is so much more than I could ever be. How can we even possibly can try to compare or apply it to our lives? And this morning, what I'm going to try to do is bring apart his life and his legacy a bit. Because he started in a very rough place. In 1 Samuel 16, we read, uh, and if you go in verse 1 through 7, it talks about Samuel the prophet was called to find a new king in Israel. Saul had disappointed God. And so he, he said, I want you to go down to this family in Bethlehem. And he has sons. His name is Jesse. And I want you to go find our next king. Now, the interesting part is that whenever uh, Samuel comes down to Bethlehem, he walks up and says, Jesse, bring your sons before me. Verse number five is where we pick up. He tells him, I've come in peace to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to me with the sacrifice. He consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited him to the sacrifice. They entered and he looked at Eliab and, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, let me back up a little bit. Here's what had happened right before this. The king right now is a guy named Saul. Whenever Saul walked in the room, you did not miss him. 
because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a tall guy. And they said he was good looking and strong. When he walked in, he's the first pick on every basketball team, on every football team. He's the guy that every girl wants to date. He is that man. So Eliab walks in and he was that man in this family. So all the things that God had, God had picked Saul before and he had all these characteristics, he immediately applied over to Eliab. So Samuel goes, no brainer. This is our guy. God said, that's not your guy. Don't look at his height or stature or how he looks. Look at the heart. They go through all the brothers. Samuel goes, Jesse, I don't know how to tell you this, but none of these are, are the ones I'm looking for. Do you have any other sons? Whenever your dad has to pause and think if he has any other sons and he's thinking about you, that's not a good thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, we have David, but he's just a kid, maybe 13, 14 years old. He's out in the field with the sheep. Like, he had the worst job. You know, if you're the youngest in the family, unless you're my sister, you have the worst jobs, the worst chores, right? Or you, there's something, oh, yeah, they're out doing the menial thing. So he's out in the field. So go get him. We're not going to sit down until he comes. The other seven brothers are like, seriously? <laughs> Who's David, man? This, this guy's a joke. He's just a kid. We kicked him yesterday just for looking stupid. We did that. He brings him in. And God said, this is him. Samuel takes out the oil and anoints him and says, you're going to be the next king. It says from that moment on, the spirit of God came upon him in a powerful way. The interesting thing is this. When David was sitting out in that field 10 minutes before, his legacy wasn't looking too good. No position. No inheritance. He had no say in anything. He ate last at the table. He had no influence. He was washing, watching sheep. He was like the 12th man on a basketball team, all the way at the end of the bench, catching everybody else's jerseys as they go in the game. If he were to look at his life and sum it up in that moment, in those moments before Samuel sent for him in the field, he would have said this. My legacy will be, I'll be the eighth son of Jesse. And that's it. I'm not really going to be able to do anything because of my position in life. But everything began to change at the anointing when the anointing of God came upon him. Fast forward in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we look at this story of Goliath. And I think most of us know this. And we're looking and saying, okay, this story of Goliath and David, how he came about. For those of you who don't know, here's the Cliff Notes version. David goes up to bring his brother some food on the front line because all of his brothers were, were older, stronger, and, uh, and the three that were fighting were there on the front lines. He sent them up said, all right, I am coming up to bring you food. When he brought them food, he, like any little brother, he makes his way to the front and he looks out. And something came over him like, just quick question. This is a battle, right? Why are we not fighting? The answer came shortly. When nine foot plus huge Goliath comes from the back and begins to mock the people of Israel. David, one eyebrow goes up and goes, excuse me? Are you serious? He goes to Saul and says, I'll kill him. You're not willing to? I'll kill him. I'm going down. That punk's down there. I'm taking him out. He's not going to make fun of all these people up here. And he goes down, takes the five smooth stones. You know the story. Slings it. Hits him in the head. We don't know if that killed him, but what did kill Goliath was whenever he took Goliath's sword and chopped off his head. Now, he did the thing that everybody else feared. His legacy began to change. 
He was known not as David the shepherd boy. He's known as David the Goliath killer, the giant killer. The one who went in when the king himself was afraid. Because remember, who was the tallest in the land? Who was the strongest in the land? It was Saul. He should have gone out and fought their giant. But as a boy. So all of a sudden, everything begins to change and it looks great for him. Then jealousy seeps in because Saul realizes this positioning. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, it talks about where he was sitting there and he was playing before Saul. Saul said, enough. And he tried to kill him. And he ran away. And finally, there's a conversation between Saul and Jonathan. And he says, I'm going to kill David. So he's throwing a spear at him, said, I'm going to kill him. So David's now on the run. So what he thought, his legacy had changed. Everything's going to be great. I'll be able to tell my kids about this. All of a sudden, he's on the run from the most powerful man in the region. And he runs and he runs and he runs. It looks like he's just going to be another footnote in history. A rebel who lived in caves and with men that no one else wanted to hang out with. But then something would happen. He would flash back just a few years before. As the old man, the prophet Samuel, poured the oil over his head and said, God has his hand on your life. You will be the next king. And he began to remember the blessing that God had put on his life and why he didn't understand the circumstances. He realized that his legacy was already secured in who God had called him to be. Yet this circumstance sure didn't look like that. Maybe that's where you're at right now today. Maybe the legacy that you thought when you were younger, maybe after that great victory, maybe, maybe after the marriage, maybe after the children, whatever it is, the job placement, everything looked like your legacy was secured. It was going great. And then the legs got cut out from underneath you. And maybe you're sitting here today going, God, that wasn't the plan. You said you're going to take care of me. Where's the blessing? God, what, what is going on here? I don't understand this. But please understand this. Just like with David, God's hand is on your life, even when it doesn't feel like it. So we go through. David is restored to the kingdom. He comes back. Saul ends up dying. Wounded in battle. And David ascends and becomes the king of Judah. And then the winds become to mount up. He was a conqueror and a warrior. They sang about him in the streets. You heard, you know, uh, Saul's killed his thousands, David's killed his ten thousands. They sang his name. There, there are still stories in Israel today and songs that they sing about him. He defeats Moab, the Arameans, the Philistines. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city they had tried to conquer and conquer and conquer for over 400 years. They couldn't. David did it. He unifies the people of God, Israel and Judah. It's looking good. His legacy. Okay, God, I went through that dark time, but now everything's great. And then First, Second Samuel 11 and 12 comes about. Now, this is the story of Bathsheba. But actually, it's the story of David falling into sin. We like to pin it on Bathsheba, but really, it wasn't her. And David sets himself up, and basically, he sees a woman who's not his wife, and he sees her bathing, and, and he lusts after her, and he says, I want her, and he takes her. And then to cover up his sin because she gets pregnant, he has her husband killed. And then Nathan the prophet comes before him and says, 
you see what you've done? And he hadn't. So he relayed a story to him. And in the story, a man's only sheep is taken away from him by a very wealthy man. And David gets irate and says, whoever that man is who stole that sheep, kill him today. And then it clicks. I've just destroyed my legacy. Because he was that man. He had stolen his wife from this man. And then killed the man. The reason this happened is because he stopped doing certain things that got him to where he was. He became lax. He stopped leading his men to battle. He should have been in battle with Uriah and the rest of them. He stopped respecting other people. He stopped guarding his eyes. He allowed himself to fall off. So the question would be, well, I've been known as a murderer, an adulterer. In that moment, he repented. Second Samuel twelve thirteen says that David recognizes and says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. He should have been shamed for his legacy, but he flipped it and made repentance and restoration a huge part of his bio. bio. Now, this morning, I want to say this. I don't know where you're at. Maybe something self-inflicted and you think your legacy is going to be that person who messed up. Maybe you're going to be that person who, who just threw it all away on a stupid decision. And you know it. You've repented, but you think this is what's going to haunt you. The beautiful thing is this. David is such that story of restoration and, and the comeback where he repented and God forgave him. There was consequence. But things were restored. And then in 2 Samuel 15 through 18, because he was not a great dad and because he had neglected his family in this process, it tells the story of Absalom. His son. They say Absalom was a great looking guy. His hair weighed like 200 shekels. I'm not sure what that is, but however you weigh hair, 200 shekels worth of hair. So he, he was like the Fabio or whatever of that day, man. He just walked around and hair flowing and everybody loved him. They said he was beautiful from like the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. I don't see a lot of people with beautiful feet, but I guess he had that. And because of this persuasion, he comes along and says, all right, we're going to throw this thing over. We're taking down dad. And so he set up a plot to overthrow his father and kill him. David's on the run again. What's my legacy going to be? The dad who neglected his kids so his kids turned on him? The man, the king who died in some cave somewhere because he was running from his own blood? But then God saw, God saw fit to restore him once again. I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Why all of this? We begin to look at David and we think he was a warrior, he was a fighter. Do you just go to, to, to battle for glory? I've talked to some friends who are in the military and, and they're in commanding positions. And they say, whenever I see that guy in who comes in who's just hungry to make his name known on the battlefield, that's not the guy we want. Was that David? Was he just want to be a giant killer? He wanted to, wanted to free his people? What was his deal? We see it here. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 through 2. It says, Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Here's the situation. The Ark of the Covenant, which was the picture, it was an actual ark made out of gold. It was a picture of the covenant between God and his people Israel. It was sitting outside the 
place of Jerusalem in a tent. And David goes, wait, wait a second, wait a second. I live in this beautiful house. I'm living large. And God's picture of his covenant or the dwelling place of God as they saw that is in a tent? No, 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 no. Verse 22 says this. You can look down in 1 Samuel 7. For this reason you are great, O God, Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all have heard with our ears. What I want to extract is this. You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And there is no God besides you, according to all we have heard with our ears. The primary reason he did all of this, unified, kept going when he could have laid down, fought the giant, all of these things for the glory of God. Psalm chapter 78, verse 4. Psalm 78, 4 says this. We will not conceal them from our children, talking about the works of the Lord, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. Here it is. David got this. His legacy was to tell others of the praises of the Lord, was to tell others of the glory, of the grace of the God who restored him, of the God who took him from the sheepfold to the king's palace, to tell other people about this God who cared so deeply for them. Let's rewind a little bit. Let's bring this into, into uh, focus because it gets really interesting here. We go all the way back. Why did he go after the giant? His reason. First Samuel seventeen twenty six. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? He wasn't upset because this guy was down there making fun of his brothers. He was upset because this guy was making fun of God. Verse 46. David, standing face to face to the Philistine, says this, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day, the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the air. Why? That all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. He did this to bring glory to God. When he was on the run, he had an opportunity to kill Saul. He was hiding in a cave and Saul himself came in and sat down inside the cave. And David slid up behind him and cut a piece of his cloak off and slid back into the dark. All of his men are like, kill him. This is the guy who's chasing you. This is the one who wants to kill you. For Samuel 24, 5 through 7, David became very sorry about cutting that robe. And here's what he said. Afterward. David's conscience bothered him because he had cut the edge of the, Saul's robe. He said to the men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David was sorry because he had stepped on something. He had done something wrong to someone that the Lord had anointed. He had diminished glorifying God in his life. We keep moving on. Why did he do all these things? First Samuel 22. Verse 30 through 33, and you can look at all these, but it says this. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. For by you I run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For he, who is God besides the Lord, and who is a rock besides our God? God is my fortress, and he sets the blameless in his way. 
Verse 47, uh, 2 Samuel 22. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be God, the God of my salvation. Every single step of the way, his goal was to get to this place where he could do something for God. And his heart's desire, as we see, as he gets towards the end of his life, was to do what? To build a place where God's glory could be seen. And a place that in his legacy, David's legacy would be known as the, the one who brought glory to God the most. His entire intent was not to build a great nation. It happened. His entire intent, intent was not to unify Israel. It happened. His entire intent was not to be one of the greatest kings ever. Be called a man after God's own heart. That was not his intent. It was to bring glory to God. If at the end of his life, God looked at him and said, well done. You have glorified me in how you've lived. That was it. I look at our lives today and there's a challenge because so many times we're living for so many other things and bringing glory to God. If it happens, it happens, but that's not really the point. The accolades are the number one. Building that legacy and that memorial to ourselves is number one. If glory to God happens to happen out of that, okay, that's cool. Like this. Someone needs money. Say, you know what? I'm going to go out there and I'm going to help them. But we make a show of it. We make sure that everybody sees I hand them that $100. That's cool. Now, if in the end that person glorifies God, that's a friend's benefit. But so often we have amazing opportunities to bring God's glory, but we're living for all the wrong things. Let me illustrate it like this. Just, just pretend that this right here is your life. Now, it stretches into eternity. It doesn't. It ends at the box. But it stretches into eternity. Now, all of this, if this rope was eternal, would represent the timeline of your life, of my life. The entire time will exist. Because what we have to understand is, once we die, we continue to exist in eternity. But this right here, this red part right here, illustrates our time on earth. That this is the time on earth, right here. This is it. And so much of our time is spent trying to make this portion of all of this comfortable, happy, that I enjoy it. I want this little piece at the end. I'm going to work my 60 years or my 50 years. And at the end, if I can just relax and enjoy it, that's what I want. Will I get the vacation? Will, will I be able to be near my grandkids? What is it? All of this, all of our energy is focused on this small piece of time that we get when all of this hangs in the balance. Every bit of this is real and how we act and how we interact and what we build into our lives right here will determine what this looks like. As Brad talked about a few weeks ago, we stand before God and first and foremost, he says, yes, you are mine. Enter into my kingdom because you gave your life to me and you, you allowed me to be Lord of your life. But secondly, as a Christian, how we're living determines how God rewards us in eternity. But we want this. And everybody else is telling us that's all you should ever want. And we live on and on and on trying to make this comfortable. And forgetting about all this. See, when we live a life to glorify God and when we live a life to bring Him glory, this is the peace that matters right here. That in eternity He is known. And this is the opportunity to bring Him glory. 
I was holding my daughter the other day and we were walking around just trying to educate her. Um, she's five weeks old. It's not working so well yet. But we're in the backyard and we're watching a squirrel. I was watching a squirrel. She was sleeping. But I watched this squirrel and, and the squirrel is, is digging in, in uh, just around the bottom of this tree. And I, I was like, I'm just going to watch the squirrel because we have nothing else to do right now. But it picked up every leaf, every twig. It began to pull up little nuts and acorns. And it just test them and throw them down. And I see it go to the next, the next, the next. For 20 minutes, that squirrel did that. I don't know what's worse, the fact that I watched that squirrel for 20 minutes, or the fact that for 20 minutes, all it did was pick up every little nibble it could to see if there was anything good in it. I thought, you're a sad little squirrel. I mean, there's, there's so much more. Rocky and Bullwinkle, they set the standard for squirrels, right? The Christmas vacation squirrel. There's more. Do something. What about that squirrel on YouTube on water skis? That squirrel did something. Instead of just sitting in somebody's backyard, nibbling on everything else, like every other squirrel who's ever existed. But isn't that exactly us? Picking up everything we can find and trying to fit it into our mouths and trying to say, oh, I want that. Every other person who's ever existed on some level, has done that for this amount of time. Instead of saying, there's got to be something more. Yet we're like that squirrel and we laugh at it, but the problem is this, is that we do the same thing, chasing the exact same thing, running after everything so hard that we want it so badly. And don't you think God looks and says, don't you get it? For millennia, people have done this. It doesn't work out. It doesn't get you what you want. You're going to be average at best. Why not stop looking at this and start investing in this? You see, our legacy is built on our lives. We only get one shot. Paul said he was not going to work for this red part. He said he was going to keep his eye on the eternal peace. 2 Timothy 4.7. He says this, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. So at the end of my life, I want everybody to know I did what I was supposed to. Why? Acts 20, 24 lays it out. This is Paul. He's passionate. But none of these things move me. Neither count out of my life dear to myself so that I might finish my course with the joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Why did he do all this? To testify the gospel of the what? The grace of God. Here's the problem. So many times we don't want to pursue Jesus Christ and give him glory because we do not realize the grace he has had in our life already. What we see is, well, I deserve this and I'm owed this as opposed to I'm a sinner who is broken, who deserves hell. And God, through his infinite grace, gave me salvation. So we chase this instead. That ends right there at the end. It's over. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1 through 10. It's a great passage to look up. I encourage you to do that. But what he says, he says, listen, there's something so much more. We live in these early earthen vessels and it's just, why? Why am I spending so much time on this? I'm glorifying this. I'm building a memorial to myself that no one will ever remember past maybe my kids. Here. Instead, let me strive for something so much more. We've been handed this incredible legacy that has been drenched in the blood of martyrs for thousands of years, for over a thousand years. And all of this has been handed to us 
the sacrifices they went through, the, the, the things that they had to endure with their families, and not only that, drenched in the blood of our Savior Himself. And we take this legacy of bringing glory to God and that other people would look at our lives and see Him and that we would proclaim Him to every person we can talk to and we take that lightly and we stuff it in our pocket and we say, but I want this. This little piece, I'm going to chase this thing that's going to make me happy for five minutes as opposed to building my legacy on something that will matter much longer than just this. Yes, you can leave an inheritance check to your kids. I hope you do. I hope my parents do. I hope I get to. But that's not why I'm living. Yes, you can leave a good name, and that's great. But your name only goes so far. It takes one person in your family to screw that whole thing up. Ask the Manson family. Right? But when you bring glory to God, and when you set that legacy that we bring glory to God, and we glorify Him through our lives and everything we say, everything we do, and I want people to know Jesus Christ because that I have lived, that right there, that transmits far beyond that red line and it goes all the way into eternity and stretches further than you could ever imagine. But we've sold out to this. One challenge this morning to live a life that brings glory to God. John chapter 17, verse 1 through 6. So, okay, so, so how do we do this? What better way? What better way than to go to directly to Jesus Christ himself? John chapter 17, verse 1 through 6. We're going to read this together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, he's speaking to God, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Bill Lawrence, who's a uh, senior professor emeritus at Pastoral Studies uh, at Dallas Theological, broke it down like this. I've always thought that the greatest legacy I could leave is to be obedient. However, I've come to realize that I focus my obedience, if I focus my obedience in a specific way, I can leave a legacy of glory. I learned that from reading our Lord's Prayer for the restoration of His glory. Consider His words when He said, Father, the hour has come, glorify Your Son, that Your Son may glorify You. Even the Son, Jesus Christ, did not seek to glorify Himself, but to glorify God. The reason is because, he, as he said, I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He glorified the Father by obeying him, yet he did more than just obey. He focused his obedience. As he declared when he stated, I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. The legacy of the Lord's obedience was the men he left behind through the life he led. And that was a legacy of glory for him. Because that obedience qualified him to have his glory restored. Jesus is still revealing the Father to those whom the Father has given him. Now through us, and we can leave a legacy of glory as we influence others to live for him. It is not my glory, but his glory reflected through me. It is not my legacy, but his legacy continuing through me. There is no greater legacy than this. Let me ask you this. And this is, this is just, you have to be real, because we, we, can, we can really kind of fool ourselves. And say, oh yeah, I'm sure that glorified God. I'm sure that glorified God is code for maybe... Here are the things that glorify God. 
Here's how we do it. We bring glory to God and to God only. We make him the number one. We remove ourselves from the equation. When glory comes to us, we defer to him. And it's not like, hey, great job. Oh, no, no, no. Just praise God. We're not talking about that. We're talking about, I want people to see God through me. Second is this. We bring glory to God through his complete focused obedience. We bring glory to God through complete focused obedience. Just like Jesus Christ did even to the cross. Let me ask you this. And and this is kind of a, a key hand here. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, that was the end. Now, he spent 33 years in obedience to God, correct? He spent three years watching over these men. But when push came to shove, that was the cross. A lot of us may have stopped short of sacrifice. Buddha said, that's those too far. But Jesus Christ's obedience to the cross and to death and willing to give it all up, that is what brought God glory. I'm not saying that God wouldn't have been glorified by him walking 33 years of good life and then just going on his way. There may have been glory found in there, but that's not what God called him or us to do. Complete obedience all the way through. What in our lives are we looking at and saying, hey, yeah, I'm I'm obedient, but not fully obedient. I do most of the stuff, but not all the stuff. I mean, come on, Sean, who does that? This morning, God is calling for himself to be glorified. He said, why aren't other people seeing Jesus Christ in me? Maybe because they can't find it. Maybe because we're always pursuing other people just thinking we're good instead of knowing that we are seeking to be godly. We also bring glory to God by accomplishing his mission. Jesus Christ took those 12 men and he discipled them and trained them. And only one, he said, he talks in this passage, actually walked away. So we have 11 guys. Were we not all called, called to go to all the nations to disciple and train people? Your legacy... And cue with me for just one second here. Your legacy is this. If you are, no, Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. Your legacy is to bring his name to the nations. Your legacy is to share it with your children, mom and dad, so that your kids raise up and and, and they're raised so that they are willing to go, not just to the nations, but next door and into their schools and infiltrate for the glory of God. When someone looks at him and says, man, there's something about that kid. What is it? And they begin to talk and they begin to hear the words and the actions that pour out of them that bring glory to God. Are we really doing this, though? Have we been fully obedient? If we are intent on our legacy, bringing glory to God, we must be fully obedient. In Matthew 28, as he's leaving the earth, Jesus Christ said that. I want you to go to all the nations and make disciples. Everywhere. Three questions. Are you building a legacy you're proud of? In light of what we've just seen, number two, how does this legacy you're living bring glory to God? Number three, what needs to change so that we can live for eternity and not just this anymore? I'm not asking you, I'm asking you just not to fool yourself anymore. Let's just be real with ourselves. Am I really living for all this or am I living for this? Because your legacy will be told many times after you're dead. You don't get to tell that legacy then. Someone else does. This morning, Jesus Christ is calling you and I to live a legacy, to embark on a journey and to live our life where we are living a legacy worth living, worth having. Living a legacy that we would say, hey, I am today doing this so that God may be glorified and the glory of God will be my legacy. Even if they never know my name, that's fine. The glory of God is pushed forward. My question is this. 
And Christians, I'm calling us out on this deal. How are you living? Are you living at all? Are you just going through that little red part and existing every single day, trying to make yourself more and more and more comfortable? How are we proclaiming to the nations today? I'm going to challenge us with this. If you are a Christian and you've said, Jesus Christ, you are Lord over my life, then you have to follow what he says. And that means bring him glory. But if you're here this morning, say, you know what? I know about God. I've even come to the church for a while. I was maybe raised in a Christian home, but I have never been fully obedient. I have never accepted Jesus Christ, his gift, and given him my life and said, Lord, I give you my life to do whatever you want. I am, want to be your disciple. I will follow you wherever you want me to go. I will be obedient to everything you want me to be obedient to. If you've never entered into that relationship, you got to. Your eternity is dependent on it. That will be that one thing and that little red mark that will matter more than anything. This morning, if that's you and you're like, man, I don't know where I fall. I don't know what I need to do. Today's your day to take care of it. But perhaps... You're scared because of the cost. I get that. I understand that. But I would much rather pay that cost right now than look into eternity and pay that cost. This morning, we can give it time, an opportunity just to reflect, an opportunity just to say, hey, this is where I'm at, to make a decision. What will your legacy be? The great thing is you're the one who gets to dictate it. And where will you spend your eternity? To the greatest questions that we'll ever ask in our life. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And we're going to pray.